This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. In the name of God and of the dead generations from which she receives her old tradition of nationhood, Ireland, through us, summons her children to her flag and strikes for her freedom. Having organized and trained her manhood through her secret revolutionary organization, the Irish Republican Brotherhood, and through her open military organizations, the Irish Volunteers and the Irish Citizen Army, having patiently perfected her discipline, having resolutely waited for the right moment to reveal itself, she now seizes that moment, and supported by her exiled children in America and by gallant allies in Europe, but relying in the first on her own strength, she strikes in full confidence of victory. We declare the right of the people of Ireland to the ownership of Ireland and to the unfettered control of Irish destinies, to be sovereign and indefeasible. The long usurpation of that right by a foreign people and government has not extinguished the right, nor can it ever be extinguished except by the destruction of the Irish people. In every generation, the Irish people have asserted their right to national freedom and sovereignty. Six times during the past 300 years, they have asserted it in arms. Standing on that fundamental right, and again asserting it in arms in the face of the world, we hereby proclaim the Irish Republic as a sovereign independent state, and we pledge our lives and the lives of our comrades in arms to the cause of its freedom, of its welfare, and of its exaltation among the nations. The Irish Republic is entitled to and hereby claims the allegiance of every Irishman and Irishwoman. The Republic guarantees religious and civil liberty, equal rights, and equal opportunities to all its citizens, and declares its resolve to pursue the happiness and prosperity of the whole nation and of all its parts, cherishing all of the children of the nation equally and oblivious of the differences carefully fostered by an alien government which have divided a minority from the majority in the past. Until our arms have brought the opportune moment for the establishment of a permanent national government representative of the whole people of Ireland and elected by the suffrages of all her men and women. The provisional government, hereby constituted, will administer the civil and military affairs of the Republic in trust for the people. We place the cause of the Irish Republic under the protection of the Most High God, whose blessing we invoke upon our arms, and we pray that no one who serves that cause will dishonor it by cowardice, inhumanity, or rapine. In this supreme hour, the Irish nation must, by its valor and discipline, and by the readiness of its children to sacrifice themselves for the common good, prove itself worthy of the august destiny to which it is called, signed on behalf of the provisional government. Thomas J. Clark, Sean McDermida, Thomas McDonough, P. H. Pierce, Eamon Seant, James Connolly, Joseph Plunkett. This document was read by Patrick Pierce, an Irish teacher, writer, poet, and revolutionary, outside the Dublin General Post Office, and signaled the beginning of the Easter Rising of 1916. Within less than a week, the Rising would be crushed by British force, and within a couple of weeks after that, all the men who had signed the proclamation, along with some other leaders of the Rising, would be executed by British authorities. The Rising began on Monday, April 24, 1916, during the height of the First World War. This is the same year as some of the most famous and bloody battles of the Western Front, such as the Somme and Verdun. A small group of Irish nationalists proclaimed an independent republic and occupied several government facilities in Dublin, most famously the large General Post Office building. Over 20,000 British troops would ultimately be dispatched in order to crush the Rising. On Saturday, April 29, Patrick Pierce made an unconditional surrender. Within two weeks of this, the British executed over a dozen leaders of the Rising, including all of those who had signed the proclamation that I read a moment ago. James Connolly, one of the last leaders to be executed due to the injuries he sustained in the Rising, had to be carried into the execution grounds on a stretcher. And since he was unable to stand in front of the firing squad, he was simply tied to a chair and then shot. The Rising did not 
really have widespread support among the people of Ireland at the time. And yet the British response to it increased support for radical republicanism and ultimately led to the Anglo-Irish War of 1919 to 1921, also known as the Irish War of Independence, and then the Irish Civil War that followed upon the heels of that, both of them depicted in various ways by fairly well-known films such as Michael Collins and The Wind That Shakes the Barley. The Rising also had the further effect of further inflaming the already inflamed Protestant Unionist sentiment, mostly in the North, making it increasingly likely that a united Irish Republic encompassing the entire island simply would not happen, at least not with any foreseeable future. The Rising, as we'll see, as a purely military operation was pretty much doomed to failure from the start. But as a propaganda-by-deed operation, it actually ended up, despite a lot of twists and turns along the way, in the long run being mostly quite successful. This is episode 102 of the Dangerous History Podcast, The Irish Easter Rising of 1916. So now I'm going to give you some of the backstory of Ireland before the Rising, and who knows, maybe we'll cover some of this more in detail in the future. But for now, I'm going to do my best to give you a brief sketch of about 800 years of intervention and oppression and so on of Ireland that led up to 1916. Now, prior to the 12th century, Ireland, which had not been conquered either by the Romans or by the Germanic tribes who had taken over England was a rural tribal place and very much Celtic or Gaelic. Some have even described the way things were organized in Ireland as basically stateless. The island proved for hundreds of years to be relatively easy to invade, but extremely difficult to actually conquer and hold. All the way back in the 12th century, English King Henry II began over 700 years of significant intervention by the English state later by the British state once England takes over Scotland or, you know, merges with Scotland into the United Kingdom. Intervention by the English state into the affairs of Ireland. Anglo-Norman knights came in and set up a somewhat loose, by, you know, later modern standards, colonization scheme or colonization regime, you might say. However, they were only able to establish control of certain areas of Ireland. They were not really able to have significant control beyond what they referred to as the Pale of Settlement. And some historians have described this as sort of a half-conquest. And it wasn't long before many of these Anglo-Norman nobles who set up in the Pale of Settlement in Ireland went native, culturally speaking, and to a large extent assimilated with the local culture. But what really changed the relationship between England and Ireland and led to much more significant intervention and takeover was the Protestant Reformation. This added a lot of fuel to the English desire to control Ireland. The Reformation, and the fact that the English state became Protestant, as did Scotland as well, resulted in a Protestant minority ruling over a large Catholic majority in Ireland. Hardcore Catholic states, especially the Spanish, tried to take advantage of this fact to cause problems for the English in Ireland. And as my advisor in grad school put it, England saw Ireland as if it were, in modern terms, an aircraft carrier just off their coast, and they were determined to do just about anything to prevent the hostile power, such as the Catholic enemy states of Spain and France, from establishing any significant military presence or control there. The 17th century was really when the land of Ireland changed hands. The English finally got control of Ulster in the north, which up until the 17th century was the most troublesome and the most Celtic part of of the island. King James, who was king of both England and Scotland in the early 17th century, presided over a systematic policy of what they actually called at the time plantation, in which Protestants, many of them not just English Anglicans, but also Scottish Presbyterians, took over most of the land from the Catholic population. And a cycle set in over the next century or two where you would have confiscation and plantation, 
which would in turn lead to indigenous rebellions, which the British would then crush and would then follow up with further confiscation and plantation. And this cycle continued over and over again. So, for example, there was a Catholic rebellion in the 1640s coinciding with the English Civil War. And as a result of that, the Puritan Generalissimo Oliver Cromwell invaded Ireland in 1649, brutally conquered it, and this resulted in further confiscations of lands from Catholics. To give you an idea of how much the land of Ireland changed hands during this time, in 1640, Catholics still held more than half of the land in Ireland, but by the start of the 18th century, they held only about one-seventh of it. In most of Ireland, what you ended up with was a small Protestant upper-class crust ruling over a massive population of Catholics. And it was only in the north, the area known as Ulster, what today is Northern Ireland, that you end up with entire Protestant communities, not just elites, that even included large numbers of what we would think of as sort of middle-class and working-class people. Now, the English so-called Glorious Revolution of 1688, which was fairly bloodless in England, caused a lot of bloodshed in Ireland, as the battle between the Catholic King James II and the Protestant William of Orange played out. And in Ireland, William of Orange won the Battle of the Boyne in 1690, and thereby secured Protestant dominance in Ireland, which, by the way, is why Northern Irish Protestants are known sometimes as Orangemen, and why Orange marches in Northern Ireland are such a source of cultural uh, friction between the Protestants and Catholics. For the next century, Ireland was ruled by a combination of a British viceroy, who was sort of like a governor, and an Irish parliament, which consisted of Protestant pro-British lackeys. So they did have their own separate parliament, but it wasn't exactly representing the wishes and interests of the majority of the population. The Anglican Church was set up as the established church in Ireland, there called the Church of Ireland. And... What we mean by established church is a church that is favored by the government and is given certain privileges that other churches do not enjoy, and to which everybody has to pay tithes, whether they actually attend that church or not. So it's called the Church of Ireland. It's really the Anglican Church, and it doesn't represent the vast majority of people in Ireland. Most people remain Catholic. And at this time, even the Presbyterians, most of whom were Scottish, uh, of Scottish descent, who lived in Ireland at the time, were fairly discriminated against, though the Catholics were, of course, treated worse. And the Catholics really didn't have civil rights and had uh, almost an impossible time of legally owning land and so forth at this time. And over the course of the 18th century, tensions mounted, these overlapping tensions having to do with land ownership and control of the land and religion, these two things fused together as sources of conflict, and it culminated in a large uprising in 1798. This rebellion was led by a nationalist Republican named Wolf Tone, and is commonly referred to by the Irish as the 98. This was the last big Irish rebellion prior to the Easter Rising of 1916. This rebellion was in part inspired by the American and especially by the French revolutions that preceded it. And as with the Easter Rising of 1916, it occurred while the British were involved in foreign wars, which, of course, appears like a wonderful opportunity to would-be rebels and nationalists. Well, long story short, after four months of nasty fighting, the 98 was put down at a cost of tens of thousands of lives. And in the aftermath of this, in 1801, the British Parliament passed an Act of Union, which fully incorporated Ireland into the UK, got rid of the Irish Parliament, and just gave them some seats in the British Parliament in London instead. Now, when the Act of Union was passed, the Irish Catholic majority were told that they would get emancipation, meaning full civil and religious liberties, soon thereafter, but it actually did not happen for a while. Daniel O'Connell, a Catholic lawyer, led the movement to get Catholic emancipation in the 1820s, which succeeded in getting many of the legal restrictions against Catholics in Ireland removed in 1829. However, for many decades thereafter, the Church of Ireland remained the established official church, and Catholics though they might technically have civil rights, they still remain severely economically disadvantaged for the most part. The land had essentially been stolen from their ancestors, and there was very limited opportunity for them to have any sort of upward mobility. 
After achieving Catholic emancipation, O'Connell and his movement set their sights on repealing the Act of Union of 1801, but that would prove much more difficult. In the 19th century, many Irish people participated in the British Empire as soldiers and as bureaucrats, somewhat similar to Scotland's story, by the way, though because of the issues revolving around religion and land, Ireland never became quite as comfortable within the British Empire and the UK as Scotland did. Though some individual Irish Catholic people made a decent living from the British Empire, on the whole, Ireland's economy, for a variety of reasons, stagnated and in some ways you could argue even declined, at the same time that the island was experiencing a major population boom in the first half of the 19th century. And the experience of Ireland proves that the theories of Thomas Malthus are basically correct, that when population outstrips the ability of an economy to provide food, you end up in a disaster. And the reason why, for example, England did not experience this Malthusian backlash in the mid-19th century was because England had experienced an industrial revolution that caused an exponential growth in the productivity of the economy. And even before the Industrial Revolution, they experienced an agricultural revolution which in many ways paved the way for the Industrial Revolution. And this led to the English being able to have a population boom and not have a nasty Malthusian backlash, whereas the Irish, having not gone through that massive increase in the productivity of their agriculture and overall economy, did experience a Malthusian backlash. A disaster bringing population back into more sustainable levels. And in the case of Ireland, the Malthusian backlash was the potato famine, which many people believe with good reason, was worse than it otherwise might have been because of reluctance on the part of the British government to provide sufficient aid given the magnitude of the disaster. The potato famine of the 1840s really revived and stoked the hatred of the British on the part of the Irish. Estimates are that about one million people died and at least one and perhaps as many as two million people emigrated as a result of the famine. And that outflow continued at a lower but steady rate for quite a long time, even after the famine was basically over. The largest share of Irish immigrants went to the United States, although some also went to some parts of the British Empire, such as Australia and Canada. In the 1850s, about a quarter of the population of New York City was Irish. As a result of the famine and its legacy, Ireland is actually one of the few countries in Europe whose population today is less than it was about 160 years ago. There was a rebellion in Ireland in 1848, coinciding both with the famine and also 1848 being the same year that rebellions and revolutions erupted in many countries across Europe. But this rebellion was fairly quickly suppressed. Many Irish who immigrated to the U.S. got involved with Irish nationalist groups and supported them financially. In the 1850s, the Irish Republican Brotherhood, or IRB, was formed as a radical revolutionary group aimed at achieving an independent republic. Many people who participated in the Irish nationalist movement in the early 20th century had spent at least some time in the United States, and the Irish Republican Brotherhood in Ireland was closely connected to the Fenian Brotherhood in the United States. These were basically overlapping sister organizations. The Fenian Brotherhood could essentially be seen as the American branch of the IRB. So that was the more radical wing of Irish resistance to British rule. And then there was a more moderate group. There was a movement that was more of a political constitutional effort to achieve Irish self-government in the late 19th century within the British Empire and do so through the political process. This movement was led by a man named Charles Stuart Parnell, and the movement was known as Home Rule. It was seeking to establish Ireland as a place with internal self-government within the British Empire, basically to get Ireland a status equivalent to what Canada had at the time, where it had its own independent parliament and self-government regarding most internal matters, but still recognized the British monarch as head of state and still is part of the, the empire. By the way, Parnell was an interesting character. He was actually a wealthy Protestant landlord with an American mother who nonetheless sympathized with and got the support of Ireland's Catholic masses. And he almost got home rule passed in the late 19th century, but some political pushback and some political scandals prevented it from happening. Interestingly, though, the home rule movement's near success and increasing traction 
actually led to the emergence of a second type of nationalism in Ireland, that of the so-called Protestant Unionists, primarily in the North, who really, really, really didn't want to see Ireland get even home rule because they did not want to be a minority within a Catholic majority run place. They were fine with Ireland being part of the UK because overall the UK had a Protestant majority. But if you split Ireland off and make it a separate self-governed place, suddenly the Protestants are a minority and they don't want to face any changes to the relatively privileged position they have in the country relative to Catholics. So the Unionists really started to organize and adopted slogans like Home Rule is Rome Rule. Late 19th century Irish nationalists didn't just focus on the political realm, though. There was a lot of emphasis on Irish culture and history and literature and so on, and many were distressed by trends such as the fading away of the Gaelic language and other symptoms of increasing Anglicization, you might say, among the Irish people. So, for example, William Butler Yeats and Lady Gregory founded the Abbey Theatre for this purpose. Many of the people who later participated in the Irish Easter Rising were involved with the Abbey Theatre and with other institutions of this Irish-Gaelic cultural revival going on around the turn of the century. Patrick Pierce, the man who read the Proclamation of the Republic on Easter Monday, 1916, before the Rising founded a school called St. Enda's, which was intended, like the Abbey Theatre, to counter what Irish nationalists perceived as English cultural imperialism and hegemony. At the turn of the century, however, most people in Ireland, from what we can tell, supported the more moderate path of home rule rather than the revolutionary republicanism of groups like the IRB. A man named John Redmond became the leader of the home rule movement after Charles Stuart Parnell faded from the scene. And in 1910, Redmond was able to use the occasion of a hung parliament to get leverage with the Liberal Party in order to get them to support Home Rule. And so Home Rule passed, and Protestants in Northern Ireland immediately started to just flip out and lose their shit, and they began to arm themselves and began to be prepared to resist the implementation of Home Rule by force if necessary. In 1912, hundreds of thousands of Protestants signed an oath called the Solemn League and Covenant to defend Ulster's position within the UK at all costs. And the next year, they started something called the Ulster Volunteer Force, a a paramilitary group for that purpose. Catholics in the South founded the Irish Volunteers for their side. This was, at least initially, a somewhat moderate group, aimed only at upholding home rule, not in establishing an independent sovereign republic. Nonetheless, some IRB men who did want to establish an independent republic, men such as Patrick Pierce and Thomas Clark, they joined this group and sort of infiltrated it. Socialist activist James Connolly was also heavily involved in all this stuff, and most of the radical Irish nationalists were sort of leftists of one sort or another because the legacy of economic grievances among the Irish Catholic masses meant that religion, nationalism, and economic grievance were all sort of mixed up together. By 1914, both sides, unionists and nationalists slash home rulers, had heavily armed and drilled paramilitary forces, and Ireland appeared poised on the brink of major civil war as home rule looked like it was about to be implemented. And then a wild card got thrown into the mix, the outbreak of the First World War in August. As a result of that, the British government decided to put implementation of home rule on hold until the war is over. Not surprisingly, many of the Ulster Volunteer Force people immediately volunteered to fight for the British side in World War I. Perhaps a bit more surprisingly, home rule leader John Redmond encouraged the Irish volunteers to do the same. And perhaps most surprisingly of all, the vast majority of Irish volunteers, save for a small number of radicals, did just that. However, the most radical hardcore nationalists Republican leaders, the people who'd never been satisfied with the notion of home rule anyway, they began to plot a rebellion in secret. They saw this big war that was starting as a wonderful opportunity, wherein Britain's resources and attention would be devoted elsewhere, a great opportunity for a rebellion. And a radical leader named Roger Casement even traveled to Germany to try to get the Germans to send guns, sort of the enemy of my enemy is my friend type of a deal. 
the young generation of Irish nationalist leaders were able to seize upon an opportunity in 1915 to really make some rhetorical and propaganda points. What happened was, in the summer of 1915, a well-known 83-year-old Fenian and IRB leader named O'Donovan Rasa died in New York City. And Irish nationalists such as John Devoy and Tom Clark made sure that his body was shipped back to Ireland to be buried in Dublin. And at the funeral, which was very well attended, Patrick Pierce was chosen to give the funeral oration, and it became a classic piece of stirring Irish nationalist rhetoric. This is what Patrick Pierce said at the funeral of O'Donovan Rasa on August 1st, 1915. It has seemed right before we turn away from this place in which we have laid the mortal remains of O'Donovan Rasa that one among us should, in the name of all, speak the praise of that valiant man and endeavor to formulate the thought and the hope that are in us as we stand around his grave. And if there is anything that makes it fitting that I, rather than some other, rather than one of his gray-haired men, rather than one of the gray-haired men who were young with him and shared in his labor and in his suffering, should speak here, it is perhaps that I may be taken as speaking on behalf of a new generation that has been rebaptized in the Fenian faith, and that has accepted the responsibility of carrying out the Fenian program. I propose to you then that here by the grave of this unrepentant Fenian, we renew our baptismal vows, that here by the grave of this unconquered and unconquerable man, we ask God, each one for himself, such unshakable purpose, such high and gallant courage, such unbreakable strength of soul as belonged to O'Donovan Rasa. Deliberately here, we avow ourselves as he avowed himself in the dock, Irishmen of one allegiance only. We of the Irish volunteers and you others who are associated with us in today's task and duty are bound together and must stand together henceforth in brotherly union for the achievement of the freedom of Ireland. And we know only one definition of freedom. It is Tone's definition. It is Mitchell's definition. It is Ross's definition. Let no man blaspheme the cause that the dead generations of Ireland served by giving it any other name and definition than their name and their definition. We stand at Ross's grave, not in sadness, but rather in exaltation of spirit that it has been given to us to come thus into so close a communion with that brave and splendid gale. Splendid and holy causes are served by men who are themselves splendid and holy. O'Donovan Rasa was splendid in the proud manhood of him, splendid in the heroic grace of him, splendid in the Gaelic strength and clarity and truth of him. And all that splendor and pride and strength was compatible with a humility and a simplicity of devotion to Ireland, to all that was olden and beautiful and Gaelic in Ireland, the holiness and simplicity of patriotism of a Michael O'Clary or of an Owen O'Growney. The clear, true eyes of this man almost alone in his day envisioned Ireland as we of today would surely have her, not free merely, but Gaelic as well, not Gaelic merely, but free as well. In a closer spiritual communion with him now than ever before, perhaps ever again, in a spiritual communion with those of his day, living and dead, who suffered with him in English prisons, in communion of spirit too with our own dear comrades who suffer in English prisons today, and speaking on their behalf as well as our own, we pledge to Ireland our love and we pledge to English rule in Ireland our hate. This is a place of peace, sacred to the dead, where men should speak with all charity and with all restraint. But I hold it a Christian thing, as O'Donovan Rasa held it, to hate evil, to hate untruth, to hate oppression, and hating them, to strive to overthrow them. Our foes are strong and wise and wary, but strong and wise and wary as they are, they cannot undo the miracles of God, who ripens in the hearts of young men the seeds sown by the young men of a former generation." And the seeds sown by the young men of 65 and 67 are coming to their miraculous ripening today. Rulers and defenders of realms had need to be wary if they would guard against such processes. Life springs from death, and from the graves of patriot men and women spring living nations. The defenders of this realm have worked well in secret and in the open. They think that they have pacified Ireland. They think that they have purchased half of us and intimidated the other half. They think that they have foreseen everything, think that they have provided against everything. But the fools, the fools, the fools, they have left us our Fenian dead. And while Ireland holds these graves, Ireland 
unfree shall never be at peace. It was such an important piece of rhetoric. It really reignited a lot of the radical nationalists, and it signaled the passing of the torch to the younger generation, to the men like Pierce, who would ultimately lead the rising. And plans for the rising continued. For some reason, a poet without any real military background named Joseph Plunkett was put in charge of planning the military operation of the rising, which perhaps might explain some of the errors that were made. As 1916 got rolling, Irish volunteer leaders such as Owen McNeil and Bulmer Hobson opposed the plan for the rising. They thought it was strategically stupid and that the timing wasn't right, though they, of course, sympathized with the intention. And as the rebellion approached, as the date approached, they actually tried to prevent it from happening, though they were not willing to go so far as to rat out to the British what was going on. On St. Patrick's Day, 1916, the Irish volunteers had a march of hundreds of thousands of men in which they were basically walking around Dublin making plans for the rebellion. Somehow, despite this and despite other sources of intel that really should have tipped them off, somehow the British authorities still really didn't see the rising coming. Just before the rising was scheduled to occur, Roger Casement was headed back to Ireland aboard a German U-boat that was escorting a German cargo ship jammed full of rifles and ammo for the rising. However, due to some apparent communication snafus, the people in Ireland didn't know Casement was coming, or at least didn't know the where and when, so there was no one there to meet him when he arrived off the coast. Instead, Casement got arrested by British authorities, and the German cargo ship full of guns and ammo for the rebellion was scuttled. So the Irish rebels didn't get their massive amount of guns and ammo they thought they were going to get, and the British now finally are starting to realize something might be up. In light of this, Owen McNeil tried even harder to abort the rising. He even sent word out to the countryside and published some orders in newspapers telling Irish volunteers to stand down. And his orders largely had the intended effect, but not fully. And in some ways, you could maybe argue that they had the worst possible effect, which is being partially successful. Most of those who had planned to support the rising to participate in it decide to stand down, but a minority do decide to go ahead with it anyway. And so you don't end up with either the massive uprising that was originally intended or with everybody just standing down to wait for a better opportunity. So the leaders of the rising still decided, despite the fact that it was pretty obviously a doomed operation at this point, and at least for the leadership, probably a lot of them understood this was likely a suicidal one. They decided anyway to go ahead and launch the operation in the early morning of Easter Monday, April 24, 1916. And when I think about this relatively small group of rebels launching an attack against such desperate odds, I'm sorry, but I just can't help but think of Leroy Jenkins. And by the way, I'll link to that in the show notes of this episode in case you're ignorant of the story of Leroy. It was one of the first videos I can remember watching on YouTube and it's a very early example of a viral video on YouTube, one of the first ones I remember running into. Because of the contradictory orders, few people rebelled outside Dublin, and even though the original plan called for actions across the country, relatively little happened outside of Dublin. And even in Dublin, only a few thousand people actually mobilized for the rising, a fraction of what had been planned and expected. The leaders must have known that they'd lose, but I think they were aiming to make a dramatic, sacrificial statement. The real key to the whole thing was not the actual results of the battlefield, the seizure of the buildings, the fighting, which was never going to succeed in the long run. The real key was the reading of the proclamation and the almost inevitable martyrdom of the Rising's leaders. That morning, Patrick Pierce and James Connolly led several hundred volunteers down to the Dublin General Post Office, took it over, made the employees leave, and set it up as a provisional government headquarters. Other leaders, such as Tom Clark and Joseph Plunkett, are there at the GPO as well. Having taken over the building, Pierce then went outside and read the proclamation that I read at the start of this episode to a relatively small number of passers-by. Around the same time, volunteers occupied several other locations in the city of Dublin, and among those participating in the Rising were 200 women of Kuman Naman, an Irish women's paramilitary group. 
A small group of volunteers led by a man named Sean Connolly went to Dublin Castle, which was the headquarters of British authority and rule in Ireland. And there they kill a policeman outside who tried to prevent them from entering. This policeman is the first person killed in the Rising, and ironically, he was not British, he was an Irishman named James O'Brien. As they try to enter Dublin Castle, Sean Connolly's men receive some return fire from policemen, and as a result, they left Dublin Castle, even though they really could have, if they would have pressed their attack, easily taken it. There was a very small number of soldiers and policemen who were there at the time. And the rebels actually had the numerical advantage, but they, they pulled back in the face of a little bit of resistance. And instead, Sean Connolly's group then occupied nearby City Hall. Some British soldiers arrived on the scene and engaged in a shootout with the rebels. Sean Connolly was killed in that firefight, making him the first of the rebels to die in the Rising. The rebels had planned to take over the Central Communications Building in Dublin to cut off communication with Britain and with the rest of Ireland as well, which was a good strategic idea. But they apparently heard that large numbers of British soldiers were there, and based just on that hearsay, they aborted that plan. By the way, the information was false. They could have probably easily taken that communications headquarters. And this ends up being a huge blunder because it means that authorities in Dublin can still talk to the rest of the country and most importantly, can still talk to London. Another blunder they make is not taking Dublin's ports or railroad hubs, which is going to allow the British to quickly ship in lots of troops. Volunteers began setting up barricades and digging trenches, something kind of strategically dumb given the situation in the city. After all, rooftops are a lot more useful than trenches and barricades in urban warfare. Many Dublin civilians at the time wanted absolutely nothing to do with the Rising, and some of them act actively opposed it, taunted the rebels, and so on. And volunteers killed at least a few civilians who tried to interfere with them, and a few more were clubbed with rifle butts, apparently. A little bit later on Monday, the British sent in some cavalry, who then got into some gunfights with the rebels, and the situation in Dublin just became overall chaotic. Many people, many just average citizens, rather than supporting this provisional government, these rebels, instead took the opportunity to do things like looting. And the rebels were really taken aback by this. They thought that people would rise up behind them in their, their mission to establish an Irish Republic and all that stuff. On Tuesday, British authorities declared martial law in Dublin. Brigadier General William Lowe takes over, and over the course of Tuesday night, thousands of British troops are being shipped over to Dublin. Soldiers of the Sherwood Foresters Infantry Regiment, many of them very, very raw recruits, disembarked and had to fight their way through the city, and they had a very hard time in particular taking the Mount Street Bridge, despite the fact that there were only 17 rebels defending it. The Sherwood Foresters made repeated assaults on the bridge, but they kept taking fire and casualties, and in this battle... The British suffered over 200 casualties at a cost of just four rebels killed. It took the British nine hours to advance 300 yards and take that position. And it was this one place where they suffered more than half of their casualties during the entire rising. The South Dublin Union was another place where the rebels put up very stiff resistance. There, at least initially, much of the fighting took place at extreme close range, often inside of buildings. And it was in this battle that rebel leader Cattlebrua was wounded in the process of leading the defense. After engaging in some nasty fighting, the British soldiers there pulled back from the complex and instead decided to lay siege to it. Fierce fighting took place in and around the four courts over the course of three days. This was one of the most heavily defended rebel locations, and the fighting was brutal. Frustrated by the difficulty they were having advancing, British troops at the four courts vented their frustration on some hapless civilians who were nearby. The British started to bring in heavy artillery and started shelling key rebel locations, including the GPO, the General Post Office. By this point, there were several major fires burning in the city, caused by the artillery fire primarily. And this, the fires, really hurt the rebels' cause because it messed up their visibility and it made it impossible to hold certain key buildings because obviously you can't hold and defend a building that's burning on fire. Eventually, the GPO caught fire and the rebels decided they were going to try to abandon it and relocate, but then they found that was impossible. The way was blocked by British troops. James Connolly, who had been in charge in the GPO, was injured and had to be put on a stretcher. Patrick Pierce took over command. And by Saturday, April 29, the rebels realized they had no hope. Patrick Pierce 
disturbed by all the civilian deaths that he saw, decided to go ahead and surrender. British General Lowe demanded unconditional surrender. And as a result, Pierce's surrender document read as follows, quote, In order to prevent the further slaughter of Dublin citizens, and in the hope of saving the lives of our followers now surrounded and hopelessly outnumbered, the members of the provisional government present at headquarters have agreed to an unconditional surrender, and the commandants of the various districts of the city and county will order their commands to lay down arms, end quote. The remaining rebels surrendered en masse when they heard the news. Of those killed in the rising, more than half of the total were civilians, somewhere between 250 and 300. 126 British soldiers died as well as 17 policemen, and on the rebel side, 82 died in the fighting. Over 2,000 people were wounded in the battles, most of them civilians. The vast majority of the civilians who were killed and wounded were caused by the British Army. You know, when you're firing off artillery and machine guns and all that stuff in a city, these things are going to happen. Although there were also a few instances recorded of British soldiers just executing civilians. Like I said before, there had been a little bit of mobilization in a few other parts of the country, but none of it really amounted to much. Let's talk a little bit about the aftermath and legacy of the Easter Rising. British General John Maxwell ordered the arrest of over 3,000 people in the aftermath, many of whom hadn't even participated in the rebellion, and many of them ended up being released fairly quickly. Those arrested were held at Richmond Barracks in Dublin. The rebel leaders, though, were treated not as POWs, but because of World War I going on, as traitors during wartime. So they're going to be court-martialed, and if convicted, they will face execution by firing squad at Kilmainham Jail. Fifteen rebel leaders were convicted and over the course of several days were executed, including all of the signers of the proclamation. Several important rebel leaders were not executed for one reason or another. One who's going to prove to be a very important figure in later Irish history is a leader named Eamon de Valera, who had led the defense of a place called Boland's Mill during the Rising. He was not executed, supposedly in part because he'd been born in America and it was World War I, the British were trying to, trying to gain American support in that war, and also supposedly part of why he wasn't executed was that General Maxwell had the impression that De Valera was not an important figure in the resistance movement, and so he's just sent to prison for a while. And De Valera will actually go on to become arguably the most important Irish leader of the 20th century. As the executions took place, much of the Irish public, who had really not supported the rebellion when it happened, began to be very sympathetic to it and began to be enraged at the British authorities for what they were doing. The members of Parliament who supported Home Rule, these moderates who did not support the rebellion, who had wanted to obtain self-government through the political process, they spoke out against the execution, and they warned with great prescience that the executions were driving the Irish people to sympathize with the radical rebels. Close to 2,000 men ended up being imprisoned in internment camps in England and Wales. Many of these hadn't even been part of the Rising, but then the experience of being imprisoned turned many of them into radical rebels. The way my advisor put it back in graduate school was that these British prisons became guerrilla warfare universities, and they created the men who would engage in the Anglo-Irish War and the Irish Civil War just a few years later in the early 1920s. Kind of like John Brown's attack on the arsenal at Harper's Ferry in 1859, the Easter Rising was a complete disaster in short-term military terms. But it ended up being, in the long term, something that led to the achievement of the larger goals of the people who planned and executed the operation. The combination of the way the British dealt with the Rising, by execution and by mass imprisonments, and also the threat at the time of British conscription of Irish soldiers to fight in World War I, these things largely killed off the moderate constitutional movement to achieve Irish self-government. And in the 1918 elections, the radical Republican Party Sinn Féin won the Irish vote in a landslide. Instead of taking their seats at the Parliament in Westminster, they abstained from that and instead formed a provisional government known as the First Oil Iran. Soon thereafter, these men began ordering attacks on the Royal Irish Constabulary, the British 
state-sponsored police force in Ireland, and this ignited the Irish War of Independence, also sometimes called the Anglo-Irish War. The 1921 Anglo-Irish Treaty would create something called the Irish Free State, similar to what Home Rule would have done, but this also partitioned off the North to keep the North as part of the UK. This treaty led to a couple of years of civil war in Ireland among the Irish nationalists. Radicals didn't accept the treaty because, one, it didn't create a fully sovereign, independent Irish republic, and two, it partitioned off the north. It didn't create a united, self-governing Ireland. And so this conflict, this Irish civil war, is the conflict in which Michael Collins, who masterminded much of the war against the English and who had secured the treaty, gets killed. But despite Collins getting killed, the radicals were mostly beaten by 1923, in part because the majority of the people in Ireland, as well as the Catholic Church in Ireland, supported the treaty and supported the Irish Free State. After that, though, Ireland gradually increased its autonomy, culminating in the establishment in 1949 of an actual republic, no longer part of the so-called British Commonwealth in any way. The North, the part sometimes referred to as Ulster, continued to be, and still is, legally a part of the UK, though it had many decades of violence, but thankfully for the last 15 years or so, it's been pretty quiet, because it turns out that actually negotiating with terrorists sometimes does work pretty well. So even though you, and perhaps I for that, for that matter, might think these people were foolhardy who did this rebellion, and you, and I for that matter, might not necessarily agree with all of the different facets of their ideology, I think on some level you've got to admire the sheer David versus Goliath courage of these rebels who rose in 1916. It almost calls to mind another situation, the Alamo, where I don't agree with all the things those people were fighting for in that particular instance, but I still admire what they did and their willingness to take a stand like that against great odds. A few years after the rising, a priest named Canon Charles O'Neill wrote a song about the rising called The Foggy Dew, and it's an amazing song of rebellion. And I'll just read some of the lyrics here. I'll also link in the show notes to my favorite version of the song, which is by the Young Dubliners. I'll, I'll find that on YouTube and link to it. So here are the lyrics of The Foggy Dew. As down the glen, one Easter morn, to a city fair rode I, their armed lines of marching men in squadrons passed me by. No pipe did hum, no battle drum did sound its dread tattoo. But the Angelus bells, or the Liffey swells, rang out in the foggy dew. Right proudly high over Dublin town, they hung out the flag of war. T'was better to die neath an Irish sky than at Suvla or Sudel Bar. By the way, that's referring to places in Turkey where British forces, including Irish soldiers, had fought as part of the doomed Gallipoli campaign of 1915. Continuing on with the foggy dew. And from the plains of Royal Meath, strong men came hurrying through, while Britannia's Huns, with their long-range guns, sailed in through the foggy dew. T'was England bade our wild geese go, that small nations might be free. That's a reference, by the way, to the fact that the English said they were getting into World War II, or sorry, World War I, to protect the small nation of Belgium, and of course, at the same time, they had had their boot on Ireland for centuries. Their lonely graves are by Suvla's waves, or the fringe of the great North Sea. Oh, had they died by Pierce's side, or fought with Cattlebrough? Their graves we'd keep, where the Fenians sleep, neath the shroud of the foggy dew. Oh, the bravest fell, and the requiem bell rang mournfully and clear, for those who died that Easter tide in the springtime of the year. While the world did gaze in deep amaze at those fearless men, but few, who bore the fight that freedom's light might shine through the foggy dew. As back through the glen I rode again, and my heart with grief was sore, for I parted then with valiant men, whom I never shall see more. But to and fro in my dreams I go, and I kneel and pray for you. For slavery fled, O glorious dead, when you fell in the foggy dew. Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. Please check out the website, profcj.org. That's profcj.org. There you can find show notes for all the episodes, links, and other information. You can also email subscribe to the website by putting in your email in the little subscribe box off to the side there, 
And if you do that, you'll get an email notification every time something new is posted at the website. I promise you won't get any spam or anything uh, from me if you sign up there. You'll just get an announcement every time something new is posted on the website, which most of the time means a new episode, but occasionally is another sort of announcement or what have you. Please feel free to contact me with questions, comments, or other things. The email address is profcj at profcj.org. That's profcj at profcj.org. You can also connect with the show and follow it on social media, like us on Facebook, follow on Twitter, and you can find the show in podcast venues such as iTunes and Stitcher. You can subscribe there. Uh, by subscribing in iTunes, you'll help the show rise in the iTunes charts, and of course that will help grow the show's audience. If you like this show and want to see it continue to keep going and to grow and to improve, there are a lot of ways you can help support it. One is simply to spread the word about the Dangerous History podcast to anyone you think might appreciate it. You can also help spread the word by leaving ratings and reviews in podcast venues like iTunes and Stitcher. And of course, we very much need and appreciate financial support. You can go to profcj.org donate to see a whole bunch of different ways that you would help the show out financially. One, of course, is patreon.com slash profcj, where if you pledge to help out the show with a donation of at least $1 per episode, remember, not only will I thank you by name in the next episode that I make, but you'll also have access to bonus episodes that I put there periodically that are available nowhere else. You can also make one-time or recurring donations via PayPal at profcj.org donate, and I have a Bitcoin address if you want to donate that way. And of course, a final way you can help out the show financially is when you do your Amazon shopping, go to Amazon through any of my affiliate Amazon links on my website. And if you do that, the Dangerous History Podcast will get a small cut, a little commission from anything you purchase at no additional cost to you. Thanks again for listening. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.